Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll talk with John T. Foster, Jr., co-editor of the book Calling Yankees to Florida, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Forgotten Tourist Articles. Someone has claimed that her novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, was in fact the biggest-selling novel of the 19th century. We'll discuss the prehistoric Vero Man discovered in 1915 and remember the notorious Ashley Gang of the Prohibition era. His father had started a still. Now, just when uh, Joe Ashley started developing stills, I don't know, we didn't have an exact date for that, but he had two or three of them out there, you know, around the Everglades. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The Swanee River Far, far away There's where my heart is turning Above does what the old folks Stephen Foster wrote what would become the official state song of Florida, Old Folks at Home, in 1851. The following year, in 1852, Harriet Beecher Stowe released her novel Uncle Tom's Cabin, making her the most famous writer in 19th century America. Yes, and in fact, someone has claimed that her novel Uncle Tom's Cabin was in fact the biggest selling novel of the 19th century. John T. Foster, Jr. is co-editor of the book Calling Yankees to Florida, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Forgotten Tourist Articles. I'd hate to go and try to prove that, given Tolstoy and, uh, by all means, Dickens. But uh, there are some things that fit the story that it is incredibly popular. Uh, it ranges from what um, President Lincoln is said to have said when they met at the White House that you are this little lady who started this great war. Um, but there are other things that fit, too. Um, in the um, first year of publication, uh, it is said to have sold 300,000 copies in this country, uh, a million and a half in Great Britain. Um, it... Um, generated uh, something like um, uh, $10,000 worth of income in the first three months of publication, which was said to be the largest sum ever given uh, uh, to an author from the earnings of a book uh, in both the United States and in Europe. So uh, that's quite a benchmark. Perhaps the biggest thing that affected people is that there was perhaps a thousand stage productions. 
And uh, unlike today, when we, a person would get royalties from this, nothing came to stow from it. Uh, but there are estimates that millions of Americans saw uh, stage versions of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel helped to fuel the raging debate over slavery in the United States and played a significant role in leading the nation to civil war. Just after the war, Stowe moved to Mandarin, which is now part of Jacksonville. She started coming uh, in 1867, did it for 17 years every winter. Uh, quite obviously, she was escaping winter weather, and she particularly hated blizzards in March. Uh, just as you're getting interested in spring, then you end up with a foot of snow, and so that's one thing. Another thing that's always been very clear is that she had a son who was an alcoholic, uh, and that given the fame of the family, she needed a place for him to be, hopefully to recuperate and recover. And so that's yet a different thing. Harriet Beecher Stowe had many family members living in Florida when she first came here in 1867. John Foster says that female family members provided a particularly important support group for her. The uh, woman who is best known and appears in biographies is the wife of um, her half-brother James, uh, Francis Perkins Beecher, and James uh, Beecher were married in Jacksonville in 1864, uh, military wedding. And she stayed in Jacksonville, Francis did. Uh, while her husband was um, uh, on duty at such interesting places as Bolin and sleeping in a water tower as his men are being infected by mosquitoes and uh, malaria, no doubt, as well. And so she went back and forth some. So this is the family members that are best known for being in Florida. What is not known is... And, uh, till relatively recently, is that she had two first cousins here. Uh, one of them was Harriet Foote Hawley, and since her own health was a bit precarious, she brought her younger sister, Kate. Uh, women could come uh, if their husbands were officers on garrison duty, and uh, Harriet Foote Hawley was married to Joseph uh, Hawley, uh, who was in command of the garrison at Fernandina for much of the first half of 1863. And then he was moved to St. Augustine. And so uh, you have her coming along. Uh, but she's doing this in a very interesting way. Uh, the couple owned a newspaper, and then shortly after the Civil War would own the Hartford Current, which is still a very well-known newspaper. But uh, Harriet uh, Hawley uh, wrote articles that were published in their newspaper, not only about conditions in the Sea Islands, there were four of those, but also about Florida in the Civil War. So the idea of a woman acting as at times a journalist in the Civil War. Uh, there are several books on Civil War journalism, and the grand total is only seven or eight women who function this way at all. So you have family members here. Uh, her half-sister, Isabella Beecher Hooker, came to uh, Civil War Jacksonville. John Foster, his wife Sarah, and Roscoe A. Turnquest wrote an article about these women that was published in the summer 2012 edition of the Florida Historical Quarterly. 
While living in Florida, Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote many articles about the state, some of which were collected in the classic book Palmetto Leaves. It's a wide range of articles. They were all derived from a serial that appeared in a newspaper in one year's time, 1872, and uh, then they were published the following year. They range on different things, like travel to Florida, begins with just a train trip from Savannah down. Uh, most of the time they did this by steamer and steamboat. And uh, so that's one topic. Uh, there are varieties of others in the book. Uh, there's a trip to uh, uh, St. Augustine. Uh, in this case, not by a true rail trip, but sort of a uh, a tram. This was a vehicle on rails pulled by uh, horses or donkeys or one. And in any case, uh, that's how she visited it. Uh, she wrote this series, uh, roughly 17 articles or so, compiled them in a book, and this seemingly had a, a very serious impact on tourism. And uh, what people don't really realize is that there were uh, a good number of articles before Palmetto Leaves and even a larger number after. And so that's just one segment for one year when, in fact, the total ranges to now we know 57 articles. And they run from 1867 all the way to um, uh, the end of the 70s, early 80s is when it gradually comes to a stop. It is these frequently overlooked writings of Harriet Beecher Stowe that John T. Foster Jr. and his wife Sarah Whitmer Foster have assembled in the new book, Calling Yankees to Florida, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Forgotten Tourist Articles, published by the Florida Historical Society Press. Stowe's forward-thinking associates in Florida included Governor Harrison Reed and his wife Chloe Merrick Reed. The governor modernized the educational system in Florida and appointed Stowe's brother, Charles Beecher, as state superintendent of education. Both Mrs. Reed and another friend of Stowe's, John Swain, were active abolitionists in Florida. As John Foster explains, Harriet Beecher Stowe and her associates were trying to attract a more progressive voting bloc to Florida to help lead the state's divided population into the modern era. Florida is uh, about half black and half white. And it wouldn't take many newcomers for Florida to become a place different from what it had been in the past. Uh, the white population of Florida was at the time divided into different groups in terms of social origin. The uh, oldest group in Florida would have been the Menorcans, associated often with the seafood industry and in particular St. Augustine. Um, a different group uh, would, of course, have been basically Cracker Florida. These are frontier and country people drifting in from Georgia primarily. Uh, this, of course, would be the a main theme of Marjorie Kennan Rawlings' famous novels. Uh, lastly, there would be Planter Florida, which is primarily focused on the region east and west of Tallahassee. And uh, these are people replicating the Old South in terms of slavery, uh, monoculture based on cotton and, of course, slavery. 
And so that's five counties, two east of Tallahassee and Leon County and two west. And so you have a, a white population that's not only tiny for the entire state, but it's not even homogeneous. And some of these groups don't particularly like each other. Foster says the articles that Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote describing an idyllic life in Florida had a hidden agenda. In addition to attracting progressive northerners to Florida, Stowe was trying to help build a new tourist-based economy decades before Henry Flagler built his railway and luxury hotels. The book Calling Yankees to Florida, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Forgotten Tourist Articles, contains vignettes of Florida life not found in palmetto leaves. She goes to different places. Uh, she, in Palmetto Leaves, does not visit uh, Silver Springs. But uh, she described the, the, the boat there as very strange and looking, and she saw it late one day, and she said it looked like a coffin in twilight. So she was afraid of it. But she eventually finds people who go, enjoy it, have a great time, and so she does. And she writes perhaps the, the most beautiful, eloquent piece she ever wrote about Florida, is a trip to Silver Springs, and she sees it by uh, torchlight, and she writes it up. And so that's how our series begins. She goes to new places, goes to different places. She also, um, finally, there's a chance to come all the way to Florida by rail. It didn't exist all the way through when she first started coming. The rails are still... Uh, partially destroyed from the Civil War. But in any case, by um, uh, the mid-70s, she's able to do this and does. So she comes all the way by rail. And then she compares and contrasts that by going to sea and with steamships and steamboats. So if you want to know how people did it then, then she's going to lay it out to you. Uh, here's A or here's B and talks about both of them even-handedly. Uh, she's so famous that when she starts coming here, would you believe a newspaper sends out a reporter to investigate what she's doing? And this reporter ends up being as obnoxious as any uh, paparazzi would be now. Uh, he's basically going over her house and her land uh, very much in the spirit of what an officer would from a local bank, and you're trying to get a loan. And so she then, he describes the house, and so then she talks about how she modified it. So this is roughly the third article. And so it's beginning to lay out what the, the situation is like. Uh, transportation changes in other ways in 17 years, and we begin to see much more modern steamships. Uh, the uh, side-wheel steamships are being replaced with modern uh, propeller-driven ones. So she makes a trip on one of those. It's in an incredibly violent storm. So this is one of the few times where she is, and it's actually at times very humorous what it was like uh, but a real challenge for people. And then she talks about what life was like in Mandarin. And in time, she get a feeling for how it changed through time and how much the place grew. And so new places, uh, technology changes, and in some extent, she changed. Um, she's busy encouraging the growth of modern Florida. Tourists do come. 
and the tourists are still coming. John T. Foster Jr. is co-editor, along with his wife Sarah Whitmer Foster, of the book Calling Yankees to Florida, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Forgotten Tourist Articles. All the world am sad and dreary everywhere I roam. Oh, mammy, how my heart grows weary far from the This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, explore our extensive archive, and shop for great books on Florida history and culture. Click on the Join Now button to get our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. A farmer named Frank Ayers unearthed the human skeleton in 1915 and later charged admission to the site. Sue Kennedy Holbrook shares family stories about the prehistoric Vero Man with Janie Gould. The recent discovery of an etching from the Ice Age has focused renewed attention on Vero Beach's prehistoric past. Nearly a century ago, in 1915, the young town made news when someone unearthed an ancient human skeleton. It was dubbed Vero Man. The man who found it was a farmer named Frank Ayers. His great-niece, Sue Kennedy Holbrook, was a child when he died in the 1950s, but she heard stories about him from her father and uncle. He was a person who was very much aware of what was around him. He was always walking along and looking at the ground to see what was down there. And apparently when they dug the main relief canal, they had disturbed the earth. He found something that looked like a stick sticking up out of the ground. He picked it up and it was a human bone. Then he dug deeper and found the rest of it. Did he realize, you think, the importance of the find at that time? Because he wasn't an archaeologist by any means. He wasn't an archaeologist, but I think he knew that he had found something very important. He did turn it over to the proper people. At that point, this area was deluged with scientists and archaeologists from the Smithsonian, from various places around the world. So this really put Vero on the map, and he turned it into a bit of a tourist attraction. Yes, he had a bit of the carnival atmosphere in him. He erected a palmetto shack and put a sign up that said prehistoric site and charged admission. So why not? I was just looking at a picture of it. It's got a sign on it and above that it looks like a lion or a tiger or something attacking an Indian that has its hands in the air. He had a great imagination. <laughs> 
the newspapers that we're looking at now show that Vero was really the center of attention for a while. Obviously, the attention went on for a good while because we see newspapers from 1915, 1920s into the 1930s who still have prominent articles speculating about what this meant. It finally was determined that this proved that there were people here a whole lot earlier than they ever thought before. Did he do any more digging? Have you heard any other family stories about that? Not really, except that he was always into something. He was a cantankerous old codger, as I remember. I was a child when he was an old man. He was just always teasing people and having fun and chuckling. He had his moments. He didn't have much use for Yankees, did he? No. My father and his brother went into business with Uncle Frank, we called him. The first Kennedy Groves was in a grass shack on US-1. One of the things that he had there was an old mayonnaise jar with, I think, formaldehyde in it, and he had a coral snake coiled up in it, which he just loved to show the Yankees and tease them when they would come in to buy fruit. Did he tell them to pet the snake? He would tease them and say, well, these don't bite, but we have others around here that do. The, uh, fruit stand was kind of a successor to the tourist stand, the prehistoric site. From the pictures, it looks a little bit like it. It does, looking very much like the original fruit stand that we had for Kennedy Groves. Did Frank Ayers ever talk to you about the bones that he found? He may have, but I really don't remember. I know that he told my dad and my uncle about it. He was very proud of the fact that he had found this and that it was an important thing. In later years, Frank Ayers got a mention in the local newspaper when he urged officials to plant shade trees in the new Pocahontas Park. He and his wife grew Easter lilies, which Sue Holbrook remembers clearly. At Easter time, just fields and fields of Easter lilies. He really is one of the uh, early settlers, but he's not as well known as some of the other family names. No, he just was a person who lived his days and took care of his own business. Sue Kennedy Holbrook lives in Vero Beach. Cheney Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. The Ashley Gang is Florida's most famous group of Prohibition-era outlaws. They were known for bootlegging, bank robbing, and murder. The Ashley Gang was based in Stewart, north of West Palm Beach. Bill Dudley talks with author Ada Coates-Williams. Yeah, here they are, and uh, there John is with his girlfriend, Laura of the Grove. She was from... Ada Coates-Williams grew up in Fort Pierce and for many years did a weekly radio program on Florida history. She's done a lifetime of research on pioneer families of the East Coast, and she wrote the book on the notorious Ashley Gang. They were in prison down in Miami. Uh, He was a murderer. The story begins in 1904 when Joseph Ashley moved his wife, five boys, and four girls from the area around Fort Myers to present-day Pompano Beach. A few years later, they moved further north to a small, isolated settlement near present-day Stewart. 
John Ashley and his brothers fished, hunted, and trapped in the nearby Everglades, and at some point drifted into moonshining. His father had started a still. Now, just when uh, Joe Ashley started developing stills, I don't know, we didn't have an exact date for that, but he had two or three of them out there, you know, around the Everglades. John's troubles with the law began in 1911, when the body of a Seminole Indian he had been trapping with was found by the operator of a nearby dredge. On December the 29th, his dredge dredged up to Soda Tiger's body, and he had been shot. And John Ashley had taken the hides down to Miami and had sold them for $1,200. Thus began a 13-year battle between lawmen led by Palm Beach County Sheriff Bob Baker and the Ashleys and their friends. During a 1915 bank robbery, John Ashley was shot in the head by one of his men and from then on wore a glass eye. Every time John would rob a bank or something, he'd leave one of the bullets there and to tell the sheriff, I have one just like it with his name on it, tell him to come out to the Everglades to get it. And the sheriff's answer was, well, you just tell John that one of these days I'm going to wear his glass eye as a watch fob. In addition to various holdups and robberies, the family began bringing in rum from the Bahamas, which they sold throughout the state, bribing or intimidating local officials. Most people were afraid of the gang, but others helped protect them from the law. Although he had killed several men and twice escaped from Rayford Penitentiary, John Ashley was known to be courteous and charming, even generous, often leaving groceries or money for poor neighbors. His girlfriend was Laura Upthegrove, sometimes called the Queen of the Everglades, who one newspaperman described as a large woman with dark hair and a 38 caliber revolver strapped to her waist. In the fall of 1924, saying he was tired of hiding out, John and gang members Hanford Mobley, Clarence Middleton, and Ray Lynn stole a car and began a trip north on Dixie Highway, present-day U.S. 1. They stopped in Fort Pierce, went in, got a haircut, shaved, played pool, and then after dark, after they'd eaten, they loaded up and were going on up. They were going to Jacksonville. What the outlaws didn't know was that Laura Upthegrove had revealed their plans to a local deputy. She told him that they were going to rob a bank up there, and she wished they'd stop it before they robbed the bank. They ought to stop them before they went up because they might get hurt up there. Sheriff Bob Baker telegraphed St. Lucie County Sheriff James Merritt, who took six deputies to a lonely bridge near the town of Sebastian, 15 miles north of present-day Vero Beach. Around 10 o'clock on the night of November 1, 1924, the outlaws stopped their car at a chain placed across the road at the south end of the bridge. A few moments later, all four were dead in a hail of bullets. At the inquest, the deputies claimed the shootings had been in self-defense, but two young men who witnessed the arrest said they had seen handcuffs placed on the outlaws. In the early 1950s, Ada Coates Williams persuaded the last living deputy to tell what had really happened on the bridge as he held a gun on the handcuffed gang leader. She didn't reveal the story until after the man's death in 1983. He said, I was standing a little below and I decided if he did anything I was going to shoot him. He said, I told him to keep his hands over his head and not to move an inch and not to move his hands, he says, because those fellers always had a gun hit on them somewhere. He said, all of a sudden, he started dropping his hand and took a step, and he says, and I let him have it. And then I heard shots from the other, other down on the bridge, whether they thought John had shot somebody and was getting ready to escape, and they were trying to, or the others got afraid that John had killed this man who would be coming, and they killed the others. They all got killed at once. The reign of the Ashleys was over. 
Were they latter-day Robin Hoods or vicious criminals? Or were they a product of the turbulent times in early 20th century Florida? Mike Denham is co-author of Florida Sheriffs, A History, 1821 to 1945. The gang emerged in a time of tremendous transition in Florida. South Florida was still very much a frontier. The railroad didn't come into Miami until about 1912 or 1913. So the Ashley gang were a product of the frontier legacy. They're a very violent family, and they were pretty much a, a part of the Florida frontier in the late 19th, early 20th century. They had quite a, quite a run. Ada Coates-Williams' book is Florida's Ashley Gang, published by Florida Classics Library. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us right here again next week. Until then, you can be part of the conversation on Facebook, where we have daily posts about Florida history. You can also visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.